A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Whether you are a longtime wrong thinker or a first-time participant in uh, The Brian Hyde Show, I thank you for being a part of my audience today. Our show is brought to you by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also by Monticello College, and Rio del Sion Home Lots. And there's a very nice link in the show notes today, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com, where you can access every one of these sponsors and tell them thanks for sponsoring the program. Got a lot of great stuff to talk about today. And and I just, by way of introduction, assuming that there are people who are tuning in for the first time, I mean, our audience grows little by little. And I know there are people, I, I hear from people regularly who say, hey, I'm telling people that I know about it. I'm sharing the links with a friend. I've subscribed to the podcast myself. And I thank you for all of that. Um, I don't ever see a day where this thing uh, hits a particular tipping point and suddenly everybody's talking about the Brian Hyde Show or talking about, more importantly, the message of freedom. For some reason, that's a pretty tough sell to the masses. They're more interested in other things like, oh, I don't know, checks from the government with their name on them. They really like that. Uh, People love to be praised. They love to be patted on the back and told you are the best. (laughs) The very best of everything. But they're not that interested, it seems. And I'm speaking, you know, with a pretty broad, you know, this is a broad painting of of American society at this time. I think fewer people are more concerned about, uh, you know, freedom, more concerned about, uh, uh, you know, living their lives and choosing their path and prospering and um, essentially being left alone from outside influences than they are about uh, accomplishing other things, keeping up with the Joneses, or maybe just keeping the bills paid. I mean, things have been pretty tough for the last year or so. Well, at any rate, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, why these things matter. And it's only a few people who, who really seem to understand this and who really desire the blessings of liberty over the security of someone telling them what to do or providing, you know, uh, taxpayer-funded handouts that put a roof over their head and food on their table. And I'm not denigrating those who find themselves in difficult circumstances, but I'm very clearly suggesting government may not be the best resource or the best approach in addressing those problems. And for those who wonder, well, then how do we do it? Well, you can look back at a pretty good portion of American history prior to 1913 in which uh, this country accomplished some really great things. And government power at pretty much every level was very strictly limited. We're going to talk a little bit about why that matters today. You know, one of the things, at least at once upon a time, one thing that made America exceptional among the world's nations was the fact that we advocated the rule of law. And in a nutshell, here's what that means. It doesn't mean, therefore, we have more laws than any other country. You know, you want to talk about the most uh, totalitarian countries or regimes that the world has ever seen? Trust me, they had laws. Oh, they had laws upon laws because that's how you control the people, right? Everything we do is legal if we're in government, but uh, you 
have to do everything we say. Really? Yep, it's official right here. says it on the paper. You have to do it. Well, this says I have to uh, sacrifice my uh, firstborn son. Yep, it's the law. (laughs) That's not what the rule of law means. The rule of law at its most basic simply means that we are all held to the same standard. That includes government. So things that would be immoral for you or me to do if they were carried out at an individual level, they don't become right magically because they're being done in a collective fashion and through the force of the state. And it's not the hardcore leftists who have trouble seeing this so much. I I don't think they really care about it. The rule of law is, hey, whatever we say goes and, you know, we're going to force you to do it. The problem I see is there are a lot of people who I think would at least philosophically come down on the side of freedom. They would be more uh, conservative, more libertarian in their approach to life, meaning um, live and let live. You know, freedom is a good thing, even, even if people may not use freedom the way I want them to. But unfortunately, for conservatives and, and libertarians, there can sometimes be a little trouble distinguishing between, uh, you know, what, what we do with the rule of law and, and what we don't, and... Uh, and should the government follow those same laws? I don't know why. Maybe it's because we get let our personal preferences get in the way and, you know, we feel like, but I need to force somebody to do this. I need to make them do this so I can feel better. Well, I found a great article here by Martin Armstrong. And, and the title is, you know, it's kind of a slap in the face here. Our legal system is pro-tyranny. Now, if you think, well, that just sounds unhinged. What would we do? This, is this man saying we should get rid of our legal system? And I would say, don't have a knee-jerk reaction. Don't, uh, don't immediately think, well, this is just anarchy talking here. No. It's addressing something that uh, I think few people really want to face. Because, look, in our hearts, don't we want to think that, hey, the legal system is here to protect us. It's here to make sure that justice prevails in the land. And that's why we have laws in the first place. You want to read a really great essay on this that actually I think is still dead-on ap- applicable almost uh, 200 years after it was first published. That is Frederick Bastiat's The Law. It's a very simple essay, but uh, has some very powerful truths that, again, have stood the test of time. But it's also pretty clear for anyone who's paying attention that the systems that were set up to ensure that justice prevails are increasingly being turned to serve the interests of the state. And that is how our legal system becomes pro-tyranny. Martin Armstrong says, in the Netherlands, a court in The Hague has told the Dutch government that an overnight curfew to reduce the spread of coronavirus should be lifted, ruling that it breaches the right to free movement. And there are other courts striking down what many governments have done to the people, society, and the economy. In the Netherlands, the government wants to appeal that decision and maintain the curfew. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Prime Minister Mark Rutte has asked the people already to stay indoors, court ruling or not. Now, Martin Armstrong says, one of the reasons I did not want to become a lawyer stems from an incident when I was in high school. He says, there was a place called the sub shop where students could go for lunch and after school. It was maybe 100 yards from the school. The guy who owned the shop next door never liked the kids. So he ran for mayor, he won, and then had a policeman standing there handing out parking tickets or whatever he could do to harass us. Martin Armstrong says, I went to check the law using my father's law books. Lo and behold, it required the town to place parking signs so many feet apart and so many feet up from the crown of the road. They did not comply. So Martin says, I told everyone to sit on the hoods of their cars and we would take the tickets. I had this. 
So when we all went to court, he says, I asked the judge if I could speak for everyone since we all had the same parking ticket. I read the law, and the judge was not happy, but he had to dismiss all the tickets. Next, they tried with a stop sign. The problem was it was at best three feet from the crown of the road instead of being up high where you could see it, even if a car was parked there. Again, we all took the tickets, and again, I asked to speak for everyone. Once more, the judge had to dismiss all the tickets, but he then admonished me, and he said he thought I was practicing law without a license. I responded I was not charging anyone. He came back, and he was calling my father that he was calling my father. Now, he says the town of Maple Shade had to completely redo all the signs. And he says when I got home, the judge had indeed called my father. And he said to stop using his law books to defend my friends. And Martin Armstrong says from that moment on, my interest in being a lawyer was shattered. Now, this next point he makes is going to sting a little bit, but uh, brace yourself, here it comes. He says there is no real rule of law. In fact, he says, if there ever was a place for true artificial intelligence, it's as a judge. The rule of law should be what it says, the law. But he says, the other disastrous problem we have with the law is total political corruption. The Texas case against the state of Pennsylvania was dismissed by the Supreme Court, claiming they lacked standing and and there were two dissents. That was Chief Justice, the Chief Justice rather, refusing to hear the case, claiming they had no standing and therein lies the crisis. Politicians can actually pass a law that says you must sacrifice your firstborn on the day, the first day of the new year in order to reduce the population. Nobody has the standing to go to court to argue this is unconstitutional. The only time you have any right to make that argument is when the government seeks to enforce that law. And Martin Armstrong says, since I don't have a firstborn because he already died, I could never go to court to challenge that law because I'm not being harmed. And therein lies our problem. We live under no rule of law, for it promotes tyranny. Governments can do as they like, but we have to be harmed first. Then it will often take years to get to court, and the court can rule in our favor, as the Hague just did. And that means government can be ruthless, draconian, and outright tyrannical, as they have been with this COVID. Merge that problem with the fact that we live in a republic, and, well, let's just say things get a little bit complicated quickly. We'll come back in just a moment here. We'll finish up this article from Martin Armstrong, but I'm not trying to shake your fear in the legal system so much as I'm trying to plant some questions in your mind of, is this really serving the interest of the people or is justice, in quotation marks, really being used to serve the interests of the state? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Anybody who owns a business, big or small, knows that uh, you often have to wear a lot of hats. You have to become an expert in many different areas because there are a lot of uh, I's to dot and T's to cross. And uh, by the way... Uh, if, if you need uh, you know, commercial insurance, this is one of those areas where you've got to become an expert. Not everybody has the time to do that, and this is where landmark risk management and, and insurance can help you out here. So I would recommend go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, click on the link under my sponsors for landmark risk management and insurance, and let them help you 
navigate all of those various corners and and uh, tricky passageways of commercial insurance. It's what they do. They're very, very good at it, and it will give you a peace of mind that uh, can allow you to focus on other aspects of the many, many hats that you wear. So I've been sharing this article here from Martin Armstrong. This is from armstrongeconomics.com about how our legal system is pro-tyranny. And he gives some pretty good examples here, um, one of them being that, you know, government seems to be able to do what it wants, but we have to be harmed first before we can sue and try to get a, you know, a bad law overturned. That can take years to get to court. The court uh, might rule in our favor, but uh, the government can still be ruthless, draconian, outright tyrannical, like we have seen with a lot of the COVID policies. He says, now merge this with the problem that we live in a republic, not a democracy. People can vote for Trudeau in Canada or Johnson in the UK only in the local community, and then the party elects them to be the head of state. And then they strip us of all rights, destroy the economy, and impose this great reset which was never presented to the people for a vote. He says, worse still, they keep extending their measures because they know if they told the people the truth that COVID was usurped to further climate change and the Great Reset, the people would never have voted for it once they realized how many will lose their jobs. So why why is he saying the rule of law doesn't work here and our legal system is pro-tyranny? He says because they, meaning those in, in the ruling class, get to do what they want, whatever they want. There's no standing unless we are unless we're one of the ones injured, and it can take years to get the court to ever apply the law that is the foundation of a free society. So he says, therefore, that's that's a pretty good indicator we live under the yoke of tyranny. There's no hope for the future until we completely overturn the system. There should be a constitutional court where whatever law these politicians pass must be ruled on by the court before creating any harm. I don't know, that seems pretty common sense to me. But for some reason, we have an exact 180-degree opposite approach. Martin Armstrong says, People have often asked me why I have studied law and the various legal systems globally, such as uh, how Britain emerged from common law, whereas France emerged from canon law. And in having, not to, in having to not only be uh, an international hedge fund manager, but also having to advise international corporations and governments, He says one of the most critical inputs is country risk. We must first come to grips with the politics, for there everything is set in motion. You obviously wouldn't want to have investments in a country that is left, for they'll be prone to simply nationalize all of your investments and you lose 100%, which has taken place countless times during communist revolutions to religious revolutions such as in Iran. He says the politics and the rule of law are absolutely critical. For that is the first step in the decision process as to where to invest. That's why China has been moving diligently in this direction of stability. For unless they do so, China would never rise from the ashes of communism. Kind of an interesting take. Again, you'll find this one in the show notes at the com article from Martin Armstrong. Okay, here's one that hits kind of close to me. It's hard to challenge those in power and to critique those in power. And in fact, you're starting to hear some rumblings, and I I don't know how credible they are, but some people seem pretty determined to uh, limit what people can say about uh, those who are in power. They don't like it. The powerful, you know, although they feel very powerful, you know, and equipped to tell every one of us what to do, how high to jump and so forth, 
They really don't like being questioned, and they really don't like being made fun of. Which brings us to an article by Anders Koskinen, Only Diverse Cartoonists May Critique the Regime. Now, I think back, and, you know, I, I would... There was a long time of my life, in fact, I recognize now as possibly one of the most blessed periods of my life, where I was not a political animal in any sense of the word. But I did enjoy the daily uh, political cartoons that I would see in, in the newspaper. Yes, I was one of those guys who, even as a teenager, would sit and read the newspaper every morning. And political cartoonists, I thought, uh, they were the original, you know, in looking back, I can, I can see, they were the original meme makers. And we need those satirists. We need those people who are willing to lampoon officialdom because that's becoming one of the only ways that we're still allowed to critique those in power. Here's what Anders Koskinen says. He says, apparently one major problem facing the mainstream media today is the lack of editorial and political cartoonists from diverse backgrounds. Apparently, in the wake of the successful transition to a Biden-Harris presidency, the Washington Post recently interviewed a number of female and minority cartoonists to get their perspective on this pressing cultural issue. Fewer than 30 staff newspaper jobs remain for editorial cartoonists, explains a Washington Post article, citing an estimate by the Association of American Editorial Cartoonists. Now, unnamed industry experts report that none of those 20-some positions are held by women, and only a few are held by people of color. So the report goes on to bemoan the fact that female, minority, or LGBTQ cartoonists are largely published through contract and freelance work or in online outlets and alternative media. Now, spilling 1,500 words for less than 30 total jobs, as this article does, he says seems excessive especially since the Post even admits that it's not like cartoonists who aren't white men are being frozen out of freelance and contract work. But he says the shift from full-time newspaper jobs to freelance work for online publishers is also far from unique to cartoonists. From 2008 to 2019, American newspaper publishers cut their newsroom employees by more than half, losing 36,000 jobs in that time span, arguing, as the Post does, that homogeneity in a newsroom may lead to some missed stories or angles is one thing, but he says such a concern does not entitle one person to someone else's job. And again, we're talking about less than 30 jobs across the entire United States. Just to put that into perspective, Anders Koskinen says with such a small sample size, having most of those full-time editorial cartoonist positions filled by white men is unlikely to be the result of a massive conspiratorial effort to keep women and minorities from drawing caricatures of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. But he says, while we're on the topic of a lack of diversity in newsrooms, let's address their stunning lack of ideological diversity. As the Post itself reported in 2014, just 7.1% of journalists are Republican. By the way, that number may have shrunk further in the intervening Trump years. Even in 2014, it was a far cry from 1971's mark of 25.7%. He says one's worldview is far more likely to impact reporting than, one, than, than who one sleeps with or what color one's skin is. And with Democrats holding unified control of the executive and legislative branches, one would think the Washington Post would be more concerned about newsrooms' need to hire Republican journalists than female cartoonists. He's got a good point here. 
the post-analysis of the diversity-challenged editorial cartoon departments is presented precisely because the Biden White House or the Biden-Harris White House is being visually satirized in mainstream U.S. papers, mostly by white men, by a wide margin. So here we have a call for change in 2021. Why didn't that happen in 2017 as Trump took office? All right, I got to take a quick break. We're going to come back and finish up this article from Anders Koskinen. Only diverse cartoonists may critique the regime. Almost makes you want to go grab a newspaper, you know, just for old time's sake. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. I knew we had a lot of crises to deal with. You know, people are hungry, cold, in need of clean water in Texas. They're freezing. You know, it's... Yeah, that's a big crisis, but not as big as the crisis of, uh, hey, do you realize that the uh, Biden-Harris White House is being visually satirized in mainstream U.S. papers, mostly by white men, by a wide margin? So there's a call for some uh, some action to be taken <laughs> to to address this crisis. Our editorial cartoonists are not diverse enough. And so here's this call for change in 2021. Anders Koskinen writing for uh, this article that was published on Intellectual Takeout, asks, why didn't that happen in 2017 as Trump took office? He says this call for a reordering of editorial cartoonists is not so much about their racial, gender, or sexual backgrounds. This is a thinly veiled call to throw out editorial cartoonists who might actually do their job of satirizing the faults of Biden and Harris and replace them with cartoons even more likely to toe the progressive party line. Now, he does acknowledge humor is a powerful and effective weapon for combating power. Replacing critics of Harris and Biden with fans does yet one more disservice to the American media consumer as they struggle to make sense of the next two years of politics. No one's stopping leftist cartoonists from creating content to parody Republicans. In cartooning, as in all stripes of journalism these days, free work abounds. However, he says freelance cartoonists envy toward 20 or 30 men in the remaining few full-time editorial cartoonist roles is a poor basis for making hiring decisions, especially when it's being egged on by progressive politicos. Hear, hear. By the way, I do love that there is uh, diversity, you know, and that uh, there is, you know, I, I love dissenting voices, whether they're from the left or the right. If they can make their case with humor, I really enjoy that. But I also agree with this this kind of, uh, it's an unwritten rule of thumb, but, but there seems to be some pretty solid uh, basis for this, and that is the left really doesn't have a sense of humor, at least not when it comes to politics. If they want to lampoon somebody, it often comes off as, as very uh, bitter, spiteful, you know, angry. And I, I don't know why that is. Um, you know, it can certainly happen on the right, but... Um, by far, I think the, the best memes that I have seen tend to come from the right. And that doesn't mean I agree with all of them. It just means that I think they do a better job of communicating whatever the satire is with 
humor. The left really struggles with that, and they especially do not like being ridiculed. That's like the worst thing you can do. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. Uh, Speaking of those who rule us, you know, those who would rule us, the systems, the people, what do you suppose they fear? Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a great article that uh, popped up on my feed earlier today. And he bases this in current events. He mentions Rush Limbaugh passed away on Ash Wednesday at age 70. He says, I heard that news on the radio after leaving noon services at my church. And he says, at first I felt this profound sadness and touch of anger. The past year has thrown a barrage of punches at Americans. And for those who enjoyed Limbaugh's program, he says, I only listened sporadically, but enjoyed myself when I did. This was one more left hook delivered in a bleak system. Yet he says, as I thought about Rush Limbaugh, I also felt a sense of gratitude. Here was a man who brought a conservative voice to millions in our nation, who inspired other announcers to do likewise, and who worked fearlessly for truth almost until the day he died. Day after day, his voice resonated on the air, striving to keep conservatism and common sense alive in our nation. Limbaugh often encouraged his audience to stand up for their beliefs with courage and persistence. Were he on the radio today, he says, I am certain no fear would be a part of his message. Now, before learning of Limbaugh's death, he says, I'd looked around my church and saw visible signs of fear. Children as young as three were wearing masks as protection against COVID-19. Because of the virus, Pope Francis has asked priests worldwide to sprinkle ashes in the hair of their congregants on this Ash Wednesday, rather than marking their foreheads with the sign of the cross. The priest and deacon of our conservative parish decided to compromise, dipping a Q-tip into the ashes and the ashes, and then using that to make the cross on the forehead, and then throwing away each Q-tip after usage. Now, Jeff Minnick says, when I see such things, I no longer know what to think. Are we really to believe that making the sign of the cross with ash-bedecked fingers on the foreheads of parishioners will spread the virus? For 12 months, we've lived under governments, state and federal, that encourage fear in their citizens. We now have vaccines, but we're told that even those who've received these immunizations must go on wearing masks and practicing social distancing. We know few children under 18 are in danger of death or even sickness from this virus. Yet many of our schools remain closed. Meanwhile, the federal government would have us believe that an army of insurrectionists is waiting to invade Washington, D.C., justifying the walls and wire around the Capitol building and thousands of National Guard troops standing by to repel an attack. These measures are ridiculous and undoubtedly make us a laughingstock in many foreign capitals. But as with COVID-19, the government wants us to be afraid. He says, outside the government... Others try to rule by fear as well. It seems every day college students, corporate employees, bloggers, anyone else in the public eye must be ever more careful of what they say or write for fear they'll be targeted by a vicious social media mob. Now, Jeff Minnick says, look, evil exists in this world and its practitioners use fear as one of their primary weapons. In C.S. Lewis's novel, That Hideous Strength, totalitarians seek to establish their utopia by use of blackmail, threats, and even murder. Only those who are immune to these tactics possess the courage, strength, and conviction to fight against them. Now, here's one thing we may need. To, one thing we need to keep in mind, he says: those who utilize fear as a tactical weapon are often themselves afraid. 
That makes sense, right? He says they may make insouciant uh, pronouncements as if they were confident of their positions, but how else do we explain the troops and walls in our capital? How else are we to regard the attacks on a president now out of office and banned from social media? How else should we interpret a government that operates by executive orders and fiats? If these aren't examples of anxiety, fear of failure, unease over their positions, and terror over their illegitimacy, then he says, I'm not sure what is. The bottom line, he says, is those who seek to rule us are afraid of us. They are afraid we see through them. Worse, they are afraid we might find them and their programs laughable. Were it otherwise, they would resort to reason rather than intimidation, thoughtful dialogue rather than fear-mongering. He ends with a quote from Rush Limbaugh, who once said, I don't think looking at things through the prism of fear is going to accomplish anything. And he says, we can honor the man and his achievements by standing fearlessly for our principles. I like that take, and I, and I really like what, what uh, Jeff Minnick zeroes in on here, and that is the people who are trying hardest right now to consolidate power over us at every level of our lives are afraid of us. And I don't say this, you know, to, to encourage, therefore we must rise up and grab our pitchforks and torches and go after them. We have a power to deny them that control that's totally peaceful. It's called consent. You do not have to give your consent to someone just because they're asserting, hey, notice this magic costume I'm wearing, or notice that uh, I've written these words on paper, therefore you must do whatever I say. Yeah, they're pretty good at intimidation. Yes, they're not above using violence, organized violence, to get their way. But once enough people have decided, you know what, this isn't legitimate, or just simply say, I withdraw my consent, I'm removing myself from your control, they have nothing to support them. And by the way, this is not something new. It's not like, wow, we just we just discovered, you know, unobtainium here. No, it's a, it's a principle that's been understood for a very long time. You've heard me probably mention the uh, discourse of the discourse on voluntary servitude written by an 18-year-old Frenchman by the name of Etienne de la Boite back in the 1500s. Now, it may sound pretty lofty and pretty highbrow. Oh, really? The uh, discourse on voluntary servitude by someone whose name I could barely pronounce. I would really recommend take a look at it. It's a powerful essay. He was a very, very thoughtful young man and a contemporary of Montaigne, which, you know, if, if that's an indication of the kind of man that uh, Delaboite was, um, the, if you're known by the company you keep, you know, you could do a lot worse than being known by being a contemporary of Montaigne. Nonetheless, consent is the key. You have to give your consent in order for someone to have you under their spell or under their power. And I'm not just saying, you know, this is the time to move to a mountaintop in the middle of nowhere. I'm saying we should be exercising our discretion and actively weighing this policy against that policy. Is this this good? Is this right? Is this something government should be doing in the first place? And if the answer is no... You have no apology to make and you have no shame to feel for saying that I don't consent to it because that's how free men and free women think. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment for this hour, but I'm going to make it count. So we understand there's a problem, right? I don't know of any, I don't know of any person who's capable of fogging a mirror who wouldn't look around and say, yeah, there's a lot of this doesn't feel quite right. But the bigger question is, okay, so what do we do about it? You know, and what, what is our end goal? What are we actually trying to accomplish? And in that regard, uh, you know, if you have that sense that your freedoms are steadily slipping through your fingers, you have to say, okay, so what can I do about it? Well, Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation has an essay that came out uh, yesterday explaining that a return to principles and practices of liberty requires that we clearly distinguish between what's just reform and what is actually limiting the power of the state to its legitimate purposes. Here's how he puts it. He says, as America plunges deeper into the darkness of welfare, warfare, statism, the question naturally arises, how are we libertarians going to achieve freedom? Of course, the preliminary question is, is it possible to achieve a genuinely free society? Have things gotten so bad that we should just give up and resign ourselves to simply reforming the welfare, warfare, state serfdom under which we live and just call it freedom? No, he says. Of course it's possible. No, we should never give up. If the American people in 1890, for example, could live in a society where there was no social security, no Medicare, Medicaid, public housing, welfare, income taxation, no Federal Reserve, no fiat money, no Pentagon, no CIA, NSA, FBI, military industrial complex, national security state, drug laws, public schooling, immigration controls, minimum wage laws, and much more, then he says it's possible to restore that type of foundation and build on it. But in order to accomplish that, we need a critical mass of Americans who understand what freedom really is and who want to live in a genuinely free society. And that necessarily means identifying all of the infringements on liberty, including but not limited to the ones listed above, and then making the case to people for removing, dismantling, or repealing them. He says if we leave the infringements intact and simply reform them as the reform-oriented segment of the libertarian movement advocates, we will not be achieving freedom any more than reforming slavery would have meant freedom for slaves. To achieve freedom for slaves, people had to dismantle the structure of slavery. And to achieve our freedom, he says, we have to dismantle the structure of serfdom under which we live. Long ago, he says, many conservative, reform-oriented libertarians decided that striving for liberty was just too difficult. They concluded that while Americans would accept reform of welfare, warfare state programs, they would never accept their repeal or dismantling. Thus, they devoted their efforts to advancing reform-oriented programs like Social Security, privatization, health savings accounts, school vouchers, selective foreign interventionism, surveillance reform, drug war reform, regulatory reform, military reform, CIA reform, and various other types of reform. And they've also devoted themselves to getting libertarian-oriented conservatives into public office, including in regulatory positions. So he says there's no doubt that making the case for freedom is much more difficult than making the case for reform. With freedom, you are asking people to adopt an entirely new paradigm. With reform, you're telling people that their paradigm will be kept intact and will be made to work more efficiently. Again, however, if you want the genuinely free society, you need to remove, not reform, the infringements that are preventing freedom. In order to reach the critical mass of people understanding and wanting freedom, people have to hear what freedom entails. 
and why it's worth striving for. For example, if all the people hear is how school vouchers are going to improve the public school system, they'll never consider the idea of separating school and state, which is what the genuinely free society requires. By making the case for separating school and state, people are challenged to think at a higher level, at the level of freedom, not reform. Consider the COVID-19 pandemic. Reform-oriented libertarians can spend all day long making the case against government lockdowns and mask mandates, but that's just reforming how the state addresses this particular health care crisis. The genuinely free society involves the separation of health care and the state which necessarily entails the end of all governmental involvement in health care, including the repeal of Medicare and Medicaid and the dismantling of the Centers for Disease Control and the FDA. Of course, there are no guarantees that a critical mass of Americans can be arrived at. But Jacob Hornberger says after many decades of libertarians making the principled case for liberty, we might be closer to our goal than we think. One thing is for sure, he says, the more libertarians there are advocating freedom instead of reform, the closer we get to our goal of living in a genuinely free society. I like his take, and I, I would urge you, don't let, uh, don't let the word libertarian throw you off. A lot of people have kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Ah, a bunch of frisbee-throwing potheads who want to support gay marriage, and therefore I can't... What we're talking about is keeping government limited and letting people peacefully pursue their own happiness. And yes, it's a guarantee. Some people are going to pursue happiness in ways you and I may not agree with. As long as their behavior is peaceful, it should be none of our business. And that should work in our favor as well. All right, one final note here. And this is one that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, vote with your wallet, as it applies to supporting or maybe even boycotting a particular business. Did you realize this has relevance in our efforts to perpetuate and defend freedom? And it's especially true when it comes to supporting, for instance, websites that provide value to us through the dissemination of credible information. Great article here. Uh, it's written by someone anonymous. The redacted is the pen name that's given. Free isn't freedom. And it's a quick little history of the Internet. What we know is the Internet or World Wide Web started out as ARPANET, funded by the, De Defense, uh, the Department of Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, the National Science Foundation operated and controlled ARPANET, paid for with government grants. Intended as a research tool, commercial use was strictly prohibited. By 1987, over 20,000 computers were connected. ARPANET had become the Internet, a collection of interconnected networks. In 1989, the first commercial Internet service provider, or ISP, was formed to provide dial-up access. Now, the National Science Foundation still controlled the Internet and prohibited its commercial use, so nobody paid for anything. In 1994, the NSF sold its Internet assets, which lifted the restriction on commercial use, and online retailers proliferated. Sites like Facebook and Google appeared and offered their services for free, which was consistent with the early government-funded Internet where nobody paid for anything. But listen to this. The author says, we now know that free isn't freedom. If a service is offered to everyone for free, what is the product and who is the customer? We can't be Google or Facebook's customers because we don't pay for anything we get from them. This means we are the product, and the customers are the ones who pay for the data that Google and Facebook collects. Data that's collected by tracking and monitoring everywhere we go, everything we do, everything we buy on the Internet. 
Now, this is where I I thought uh, there was some very relevant uh, information, too, because the author says, Lately, we've seen the logical conclusion of the free Internet. These companies completely control what we read, what we hear, what we watch, and they can do this because it's all free. If Jeff Bezos doesn't like the political orientation of a website, he can deplatform the website by refusing to host it on Amazon web servers. If Google doesn't like the message on a YouTube channel, they can demonetize it by refusing to allow advertising on the video feed. We are learning the hard lesson that free isn't freedom. It's the opposite of freedom. This has led to the deplatforming and demonetization of scores of conservative and liberty-oriented sites. Almost all the websites I visit on a daily basis have been affected. They're struggling to survive. Most are asking for donations. Many have adopted a model where some content is available only to paid subscribers. And here the author says, again, freedom isn't free. I get value from sites like the Epic Times, the Gateway Pundit, PJ Media, Liberty Nation, the Burning Platform, and others. Paying for that value is not unlike buying groceries or gasoline. If you value the information you get from sites that are attacked by the minions of political correctness, if you get information from them that you aren't getting from the likes of Fox, CNN, and other mainstream media outlets, maybe you should consider subscribing to one or two of them. If each of us subscribe to one or two of our favorite conservative, liberty-oriented sites, we can keep free speech alive and preserve the flow of real news. Free isn't freedom, and freedom isn't free. I'll have a link to this in the show notes, and I would encourage you to consider this. And, and you know, this would be a great opportunity for me to encourage you to support this program. But I'm going to encourage you to look beyond just this program and look, look at any of the websites that you visit, any of the podcasts that you listen to, any of the sources you access that provide you with credible, timely, and principled information. And if you find value in what they are providing for you, now is a great time for you to, you know, look at the budget. See if you can come up with 5 or $10 a month to support these outlets. We've got to have each other's backs, those of us who are in the, the cause of freedom. And sometimes that means voting with your wallet. So again, I'm not talking just about my own show. I'm talking about any source that provides that value for you, please consider supporting it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.